Hey, everybody. If you like the show, tell a friend. Help us out. And visit our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Tiffany, how are you doing? Still sick? (laughs) Well, yeah, last week I I mentioned that I was hardly sick at all, just a tiny bit sick. It turns out I have bronchitis, so I'm a little sicker than I would have hoped to be, but um, I'm alive and I'm getting better. I'm talking very quietly tonight, so I apologize for that, but first because my throat hurts a bit, and secondly because uh, Aurelio is also sick, and he's in the next room trying to sleep, so I'm trying not to wake him up. He's having trouble breathing just because he's so congested. Yeah, and he's got a cough and four molars coming in, so good times. Yay, it's a good time and fun time to be a parent, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's about 10 p.m. where you are, and here in Seattle, it's 1 in the afternoon, but um, it could just as easily be 10 p.m. because it's dark outside and it's pouring rain, so welcome to winter. Hello, Seattle. Wonderful. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I've been thinking about some ways that we look at our own home city or home country and the ways that we look at other places that we have never lived or maybe that we've just visited. And Seattle is, I mean, everyone talks about how Seattle is always rainy. And so that's like a, I don't want to say preconceived idea about Seattle, but that's one of the things that people who don't live there just assume that it's, you know, raining constantly. And I haven't lived there so long that I don't even remember. Does it rain as much as people think it rains in Seattle? No, no. That's like a, a guarded secret, though. <laughs> no, it does rain. It does rain quite a bit. But um, it's not like what people think of rain. Like, you know how Romans, if it's raining, they just cancel plans. Yeah, they don't leave the They're house. They're supposed to meet for lunch. They're like cats. They can't go outside when it's wet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> here, it rains a lot, but it's sort of a, this misting wetness. It's not pouring. Right. I remember so I that. Think when people think of rain, they think of it coming down and you just have to have an umbrella and you can't go outside. And that's not the case here at all. Although today it is pouring. So it's actually kind of unusual that it's been raining so hard. More than that, it's just overcast a lot. It's just darker. And I remember the white sky, just white, not even gray, just white. Yeah. White sky. But you know, people always jokingly say, although, you know, perhaps we shouldn't joke about it, that Seattle has benefited greatly from global warming in that <laughs> we are uh, becoming a nicer and nicer place to live over time. Like the summers are absolutely beautiful and it doesn't get as hot here as it does in other parts of the country. So in August, July, we're kind of resting this beautiful, sunny 75 degree 80 degree weather where the rest of the country is baking under like 100 and 110 so I remember I used to always say to people and I still do when the weather is nice in Seattle it is the most beautiful city in the country I truly believe that that's probably true I haven't been to Chicago I haven't been to a couple of other major major American cities but I really think I mean Seattle has everything it has it has lakes it has the Puget Sound. It has evergreen trees. It has two mountain ranges and hills and beautiful architecture. It's just, 
kind of has it all. So the reason that I'm sort of waxing poetic on Seattle today <laughs> is because I was thinking about the fact that when I tell people in Rome that I'm from Seattle, or even that I'm from the States, but when I particularly mention Seattle, first of all, they always say, oh, bella, beautiful, right? And I always say, oh, you've been there. And they're like, no, no, I haven't been there. Because Italians <laughs> never go to Seattle, okay? I haven't met one Italian who's been to Seattle. And they always go either to the East Coast, which I understand, it's closer, or they go to the West Coast. But they always do LA, San Francisco, and Vegas, I don't understand why Italians have this fascination with Vegas, but they all go there. And none of them ever make it as far as Seattle. But they say, the first thing they always say when I say I'm from Seattle is, ah, oh, Bella. And I feel like, it, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but people in Italy at least have this notion about what Seattle is like. That it's this amazing, cool, alternative, hipster place to be, just very edgy and cool and beautiful and lots of nature. I mean, lots of these things are true, I imagine. But it's just very much like, oh, God, if I could only live there, you know, instead of here. Do you have any idea where they get that notion from, that it's beautiful? Well, I, I'm sure some of them have actually seen photos. <laughs> and there are some famous TV shows, I think, that take place in Seattle, right? Like yes. Grey's Anatomy, which I've never seen. Frasier. Frasier, which I have seen. <laughs> There's Sleepless in Seattle and, uh, and other things. But I just think it's West Coast, but it's not California. Yeah. So there's something just slightly edgier about it because it's not the triteness of California. On the other hand, whenever I'm in the States, and I'm sure you get this as well, and you tell people, oh, I've, you know, I'm living in Rome or I used to live in Rome, you get the same thing. Oh my God, how beautiful. I would love to live there. Mm -hmm. And they have their preconceived notions of Rome being cobblestone streets and charming medieval buildings and gorgeous churches and amazing pizza and wine and, you know, romantic, handsome men and people running around on Vespas. And again, some of that is true, but then there's a lot of other realistic crap that goes along with it. And so that was my, my sort of epiphany of, you know, it really depends on your perspective. To you, I think this is where I came up with this idea. You said you should tweet some more photos of Rome because, you know, I'm in Seattle and nobody's, nobody cares about my photos from Seattle. And I was like, well, that's not true because the people in Rome would think that was much more fascinating. It's all in your perspective. Your answer was... I never see anything interesting in Rome because I work on the outskirts and I don't work in an interesting looking building and I don't, I just commute from there to work. But even the small details of, this is the thing about travel photos is the small details of like what a garbage can looks like can be interesting <laughs> to people who have never been there. Well, if, if it's in Rome, I'll tell you what it looks like. It's overflowing. <laughs> right. um, I actually did snap a really great photo. It's been several months now, but I will post it to our Twitter feed. It is a photo of a very, very old and very, very tiny nun getting out of a fiat from the 1960s. It's it's not a Cinquecento, like the really classic one, but it's maybe like a Seicento, I'm not sure. And I saw her getting out of this car and I just, it was right by my office. I got out my camera 
And I said, I'm going to take a picture of you. And she was so delighted. And so she totally posed. <laughs> so I'll, I'll post that uh, on our Twitter feed okay. on the day that this episode goes up. Yeah, which is at Bittersweet Pod. But I might say, I had a whole bunch of different thoughts while you were saying that. The worst thing I should be doing. I should be actively listening to you. No, I want to hear I your had, thoughts. I had, a, <laughs> I had a bunch of different thoughts about perspective because it's both these things like you come to understand the reality of Rome and Seattle. So if Seattle's this cool hipster place and Rome is this beautiful cobblestone streets and what you're not seeing is the fact that the people are collecting garbage first thing every morning and it's super loud or that if you're walking down the sidewalk, nobody will make way for you. <laughs> you might as well just like walk into the gutter. That's, that's Rome. Right. And then, and then in Seattle, what you don't see is that it's in the middle of this big, huge building boom and there's construction everywhere and it's, you know, chaotic and there's all these new people flooding into the city. And, and I think what people really don't know about Seattle at the moment is that Seattle has this massive homeless problem right now. So if you drive around the city, there are literally tents everywhere like on any median between two freeways under any bridge there are just people living all over the place and part of the reason is because seattle's so expensive right now but it's also because from my understanding and i could be wrong correct me if i'm wrong is because seattle has a major heroin problem right now oh so that's like not the bella beautiful city that you're thinking of with the mountain range in the distance it still is that but it's covered in homelessness right now so I think you're right. But I guess another thought that I had that's sort of related to that is it's kind of this bigger issue of when a patina rubs off. If I were a tourist visiting Rome, I might be a little irritated at how crowded it is. But in general, I'm still going to be walking around going, wow, like these beautiful medieval streets and these awesome churches. And I just saw the Pope go by and oh my God, <laughs> you don't really sink into the reality of what it is to be there until you're there for a certain period of time and i think in seattle you would feel the same way you'd ride on the big ferris wheel by the way we have a ferris wheel now here you probably don't oh, know that. i didn't know it's that. on the waterfront beautiful or you'd go to the space needle or whatever all the touristy things are and you wouldn't necessarily get into all the conflict that's happening because of the tech boom and the homelessness and stuff like that yeah it's like this wearing off of a patina sheen which i think happens in our friend relationships and all sorts of aspects of your life, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I also, though, I feel like there's even more to this this topic than just the sort of taking off of your rose-colored glasses when you get to know a place better. When you're an expat, you leave your city and you can, for the first time, look at your home city from the perspective of foreigners, it could work as well in the same country if you leave Seattle and go to Boston like I did. You can sort of try to see how Bostonians think about Seattleites and how they see that city, but even more so when you leave the country. And that's kind of a unique expat perspective that you can see your hometown from the eyes of a foreigner. And you can also see a foreign place from the eyes of the people that live there because you live there now. So you get this whole new perspective on where you're from that you just can't have if you never leave that place. You don't know what else is out there. I mean, you may travel a lot, but traveling a lot, you know, like you said, you can travel to a place, you don't get to know it really, unless you live there. 
I think you do get it a little bit with travel of getting this richer perspective of what it is to be in the world. I can remember a time when I was a young person, and I don't know if I've mentioned this time before, but there was literally a period of time in my life where I felt like I didn't really want or need to travel. I mean, you always had this drive to go other places and, and see what other places were about. And maybe that's because you started traveling out of the country younger than me. I always had itchy feet. <laughs> you did, and I, and I didn't. I can remember feeling like, I, you know, I like America. I like the United States. I, I can stay here and it's all good. And I don't know if my father <laughs> deliberately saw that as an issue and intervened deliberately, but he, di he was the first one to say, well, I have to travel to Asia and I want you to come with me. And once you open that door and you, and you realize that people all over the world are living in very different ways, it does bring up this dissatisfaction with that old perspective of America is enough for me. Yeah, or even just this is the best way. You know, the way that we do everything is the best, which is kind of an ingrained American you know, way of looking at things. And hey, America does things really well in some cases. So I'm not sitting here and dissing America. But for me, traveling and living abroad, you learn different ways that people do things. And they might be better, they might just be different. But, you know, from small ways to big ways. I remember traveling in India for six weeks. And okay, I did touristy stuff, mostly. I did very touristy stuff, so I didn't even, you know, scratch the surface of what it's like to live in India. Nevertheless, I, I did become more acquainted with their way of life. It's not necessarily the way of life that I would choose, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work for them. And, like, for example, I checked into a hotel one night, and there was a very young Indian guy who was running it, and or he was the receptionist. And he offered me a cup of chai, which is kind of typical when, so when you go into a hotel, they give you a cup of chai tea. And I was sitting there, I was by myself. So I was sitting in drinking this tea with him and he was younger than me. He was in his early twenties. I was in my late twenties. And he said, Oh, you know, are you married? But even though it wasn't like he was hitting on me, he was just honestly making conversation. He said, oh, are you married? He was a very respectful guy. He said, were you married? I said, no, I'm not married. He said, but you've had, you know, it seemed like he honestly wanted to like find out what Western women, what their story is, you know. And he said, oh, well, what, you know, you have a boyfriend. And I said, no, I don't have a boyfriend right now. He said, but you've had boy a boyfriend in the past, right? And I said, yes, I've had a few. And he kind of just like mulled this over. I, of course, you know, had to turn it around on him. And I said, do you have a girlfriend? No, 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 no. Oh, have you had a girlfriend? No, 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 no. He said, my parents will choose my wife when the time comes. And I knew this was how it worked in India. Maybe not in a super educated class, the elite, you know, the, the intellectual elite class, but the majority of people have their marriages arranged. And I asked him, I was like, well, what if you don't like her? Oh, I like her. I like her. And he was like smiling. He was convinced. And I said, what if she's not a nice person? Oh, she'll be a nice person. She'll be a nice person. You know, and I just, like I said, I wouldn't want to have an arranged marriage. But for them, it works. And I think they're, they like have like fewer divorces than we have or something. But my point is, when you travel and you meet people from other cultures, you don't immediately 
dismiss a different way of doing things because it's not the way that people in your country do things. It does. I think it's also part of just recognizing how much what you do and what your life path is, is cultural. I don't think I would have realized without travel or without living somewhere else that basically the life path that you think that you have to walk on is not just something that comes from your family unit and whatever their values are. It's also just what the culture constantly is telling you to do. And I think that's what's so interesting about traveling to other cultures is that you see how different humans, we're all human, we all have the same basic needs and wants, but the way that we operate and go after those wants is so based in whatever the culture is. It's interesting to have it highlighted. At the same point, it reminded me when you were talking about that, when I used to travel to Vietnam all the time, and Vietnam's a communist country, every now and then there would just be something that was done, and then the next time I would go to visit, it was no longer done. There used to be all these sick load drivers that could drive you around, basically like a sitting in front of a bike while they pedal you around. And the next time I went, sick load drivers, that's been outlawed. And if you ask these sick load drivers that I was friendly with, why? Why can't you do it anymore? They just say, we just can't. In America, us being like entitled, speak our mind people, <laughs> what do you mean we just can't? Of course we can. You know, it's our right to do it. You have to give me a good reason why I can't do it. Otherwise, I'm going to keep doing it. That's our culture. And for them, that's not their culture. If they say it, you can't, then you have to come up with a different way of life. I mean, you can rebel a little bit, but you're only going to rebel to that point when you get caught rebelling and then you're going to start looking into how you can invest in a motorbike so you can drive people around that way. An interview that we are going to have coming up is with an author named Emily Witt who wrote about what it was like to be a sexual person in the future, which she is contending that we are in the future now. Like our connection to the internet is changing how we are interacting in relationships and also who we are sleeping with and how we meet those people is what she's contending. Part of the reason she started to explore it was because she realized that she was following a script that she was supposed to be hitting these milestones. She was supposed to get out of college, get a job, meet a husband, get married, start having kids. And then here she was approaching 30 and realized, I still haven't met anybody that I like. So what happens to me if I can't find somebody? Am I going to just end up alone? Like part of it was for her recognizing that's the cultural pattern that is Americans are supposed to follow. But it's not what has to be done. And it changes too. I mean, if you just, if you just pay attention or ask older people how it was when they were young, you realize how things change. And my mom, when she was 21 years old, she was single. She went, for whatever reason, back to her high school to visit a couple of her teachers. It had been a few years since graduation. And one of her teachers said to her, so you never married <laughs> at 21 years old. You never married. Like she never did and she never would because she was 21 by that age and it's too late. So that was in the early 60s. So that goes to show that things change. I mean, now women get married more likely in their 30s, I think, the late 30s or their late 20s to early 30s. Even though we do have this cultural script that we're supposed to follow, it does change quite a lot. So that's a good thing. I mean, it does change quite a lot. If you were to look at our lives, we don't necessarily have absolute female equality yet. But um, compare us to people 100 years ago, like the amount of opportunity that we have and what we're allowed to do as women 
is remarkably different over that time mark. Mm-hmm. If it was like 150 years ago, I'd have a ton of kids. You might have grandkids by now, Katie. I might have grandkids. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's true. <laughs> I mean, you're right. And I probably would have worked from home. I wouldn't have had the education I got. So in the grand scheme of things, yeah, it's always adjusting and things are adjusting in a positive direction the majority of the time. But yeah, I remember that same cultural thing from visiting Vietnam in my 20s and these young people I used to hang out with them all feeling so sorry for me that I was in my mid to late 20s and I wasn't married. And how horrible for you. And yeah, aren't you worried? Well, you know, you can find that even, I mean, I, you can find differences like that even within the same city. I, as you know, grew up with two very distinct groups that I ran with. I mean, I had my school friends and I had my theater friends. Never the two shall meet. No, they never did. All of my school friends, and I should mention, I went to a pretty conservative Christian high school, middle, you know, it was all the way from kindergarten up to high school. All of my friends from high school, not all, but almost all of my schoolmates married, well, right out of college, I would say, and started having kids. I didn't go to my 10-year high school reunion. I didn't go to the 20-year either, but I didn't go to the 10-year reunion, but I was on Facebook at that time, so I saw some pictures. And there was a picture of all the people who showed up for the reunion, and I should say it was a very small class. It was a class of 60. And they all had their kids with them. I mean, I could not believe. So 10-year reunion, you're 28, right? I could not believe how many had kids, like two kids. Some had three kids. Just like I couldn't believe it. Whereas now, my theater friends, we are all approaching 40. And of my close, close theater friends, who I would say maybe four, there's like maybe four of you guys, three, four, I'm the only one who has kids. None of us, yeah. Yeah. I could, and it's so weird. It's so, I mean, I didn't have kids till I was, how old was I? I had Aurelia when I was just turned 38. That's old. I mean, even for these days, that's, you know, that's getting up there to have your first kid at 38. And I shouldn't say I'm the only one. I'm I know, the first. we were so shocked. I know. <laughs> um, so it just goes to show you that it also depends on the company you keep. Yeah. And what you're exposed to, for sure. And what you're exposed to. And like one of our past people that you interviewed, you interviewed Nicole Hardy. She wrote a book the Confessions of a Latter-date Virgin. And she grew up as a Mormon. And for her, you know, being in her mid-20s to late-20s to early-30s and not being married was just unheard of. So it really depends on your, your situation, where you are. Not just what country you're in, but what social circle you run in. That's true. I mean, I was just, I took my mother to the ballet last night, believe it or not. Oh, what was it? It was good, actually. And I don't usually say that about ballet. What ballet was it? Cinderella. Oh, that's a nice one. I love that one. It was really good. It was the first ballet I'd ever seen that was emotive of emotions and not just about posture and beauty, (laughs) which I really liked. Anyway, that's an aside. But we were talking about where I grew up, which was Brainerd, Minnesota, which is a, I wouldn't say it's a really small town, but it's a smaller town in central Minnesota that in recent years has really suffered economically. Last time I was there, which has been a while, probably 2013 or 14, coming back from Rome, I stopped by there. And at that point, there was a um, 
20% of the people living there were unemployed, which is bad. Um, and the people who were employed were having to work multiple jobs because every single place that employed people decided to not employ them full time so that they didn't have to give them benefits. So the city was really, really, really suffering. But it, same thing culturally, where a lot of the people that I know there, married out of college, have a bunch of kids. My best friend growing up got married in 1999 and has three kids, all of which if are not already in high school are approaching high school, which is a totally different point of view than me. But also when you look at things politically, which of course everybody in America is completely obsessed with politics right now, and we all know why, <laughs> a lot of them are posting things on Facebook, uh, not my best friend from there, but other people, posting things on Facebook just saying, what is everybody afraid of? <laughs> and why are all these women yeah. marching in the streets? I don't get it. And then they're making snarky comments like, maybe they just made a New Year's resolution to get more exercise. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking, boy, dodged a bullet there <laughs> that we moved away. It's so easy to imagine what kind of thinking I would have had had I stayed there and that I would have children and be married now. And I'm glad that I don't have children right now. So, and I'm glad I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I will just <laughs> say that right, right off the bat. Such a different perspective. And those are the people that I loved and grew up with. And just by the nature of my parents moving around, I'm a totally different human being than I would have been especially knowing me as a person that sticks close to home. It's easy for me as a person in Seattle to say, 20% unemployment, why don't you move somewhere else? Yeah, that's my, that was my first thought, I have to say. I know, but then at the same point, you're like, well, it's hard to move somewhere else. My parents are here. All my friends are here. It's the same deal. It's the same reason why, why did I come back to Seattle? Because my parents are here and all my connections are here and all my friends are here, except for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I just feel so thankful to my parents that they moved me to somewhere else and that I got the opportunity to live in Rome and travel because I feel like I just feel so much more informed. So listen to this. I, I don't know why I, I just what you were saying made me think of this, you know, how our lives can take a different turn depending on where our parents decide to move. I grew up my entire life in Seattle, as you know, born and raised zero to 18. But when I was 10 years old, my mom, who was divorced, um, she started dating a Frenchman, very seriously. I hope she doesn't mind that I'm sharing this story. She started dating a Frenchman who lived in Paris and was divorced with two daughters who were just about our age, maybe a little younger than us. From what I understand, they were very, very much in love. But their relationship was kind of doomed because she would never leave us to move to, to France, and he would never leave his daughters to move to the States, and he couldn't bring them because, of course, he had joint custody with his ex-wife. My mom couldn't bring us, supposedly. Maybe if she had wanted to enough, my dad may have agreed. I don't know. But the thought at that time of her uprooting us and moving us to Paris was not even a consideration. So they ended up breaking up, and now she's very, very happily married to my stepfather, who she met several years later. But I always thought, God, why didn't you move us to Paris? Like, man, that would have been so cool to grow up, or at least, you know, 10 to 18 in Paris. But beyond the coolness factor, how different would I be right now? 
who would I be now? Would I be somebody very, very different from myself? It's impossible to know, but it's interesting to think about. It's really interesting to think about. Well, you wouldn't have this podcast. Yeah, because, because I would, we, we never would never would have met. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Well, we should probably leave it there because it's an interesting question that to ponder. Who would I have been otherwise? But another upcoming episode that we really want to do is about signs. And maybe defining the signs is hard. Basically, the question, have you ever received a sign of some kind that caused you to do something? Messages from the universe? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just hard to define because for me, it would never be like a direct sign. Like I opened a letter and and it was two free tickets to Rome or something like that. <laughs> that rarely happens. <laughs> and you're like, well, why, why not go? But I think that there are, we all have those moments where maybe it's better to think about it as a decision point. Something happened that made you decide to do something that seemed a little radical at the time or decisive at the time. And that's what we're going to explore in a future episode. Yes, so. I'm looking forward to that. If you have any stories like that, send us an email bittersweetlife at mail.com or tweet us, go to Facebook. One last question. How did living in Rome for one year change your perspective of Seattle? Of Seattle? Um, I think it made me like Seattle less, actually. <laughs> I'm starting to like it more. But I think when I first got back, I think Seattle just felt like boring and like I knew too much about it Hmm. and I think I came from the disadvantage of or the advantage depending on how you look at it of having been a person who worked in the news for 10 years in this city it's not only that I knew just how it works and where every street was and how to get to places but I also knew the interworkings of politics and all the infighting that had gone behind this legislation or that legislation. And so it had this kind of, like, I knew too much there about no it. Mystique. There was no mystique. Yeah, there's no mystique. There was no mystery. I feel like there were things to explore still. And things to discover. Exactly. And of course, that's not true. That's part of my own issue. But I'm surprised that it, I mean, I guess, I think maybe part of it was that you were there for only a year and you didn't have time to lose the patina of Rome maybe or at least you didn't lose a lot of it and then you moved back and you weren't ready to move back for me I don't have a lot of different thoughts on on Seattle to be honest with you but the city of Boston is really changed the way I think about that city because I loved Boston when I first moved there I really loved it and I still I still think it's a great city um but by the time I left, I was so over it. I was so done with that city. And I just wanted to be out. I wanted to be gone. And now I think about Boston. And I think, oh, my God, Boston is so amazing. It's such a great city. I would love to live there again. So I am I think I'm a grass is greener person. Yeah. Well, and you've been in Rome for a long time. And you might be just getting those itchy feet again. I am getting itchy feet again. It's, it's happening. It reminds me of back when I was in my 20s, before I had done very much travel, I was good friends with a traveling magician. And back at that time, it was very common for me to wax poetic about how great and beautiful Seattle was. And he looked around at the architecture and the 1960s vibe that is Seattle Center and all these ugly 1970s buildings that 
people put up without giving it any thought. And he said, this is not the most beautiful city in the world. And I said, yes, it is. And he's like, no, it's not. You have not been to Europe. You haven't even been to New Orleans. <laughs> you will find if you travel more that Seattle is not that beautiful. <laughs> and in that way, I think he was right. Once you go to Europe and you see all these amazing buildings that people intentionally put up and put thousands and thousands of dollars into to, of course, make them more grandiose in some cases, even still, seeing that kind of architecture, you look around at the things that they just sort of slap up on the West Coast and you think, there is no deep history here. This is all disposable garbage. And <laughs> he was right. And what makes Seattle beautiful is its surroundings, not so much the way that the city was created, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's the nature, I think. Yeah, exactly. But we should leave it there and send us your stories about the signs you received and the action you took because of it. You can find out how at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com.